This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Arizona, home of Navajo ultramarathoner Sean Martin. In the Navajo culture, we get up and we run every morning for three reasons. We run because... In the Navajo tradition, uh, running is a celebration, um, a form of prayer, and a teacher. In the morning, runners wake up and run to the east to greet the rising sun. So on this day, I was tired after five hours of running. And, and In the summer of 2011, Sean was on a long weekend run in Canyon de Chez. It's a place where people have been living off the land, uninterrupted, for 5,000 years. The canyon is just a big winding canyon. I came around a corner and there, were, uh, there was a pack of wild horses. I startled the horses, the herd, and they took off down canyon uh, in the same direction I was running. So after two miles of chasing the herd, the, the colts, the babies, were starting to fatigue and tire. And so the whole herd slowed down around them. I was able to make my way into the center of this steel running herd, and we're all running together now. And I'm running, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these animals. You know, that, that was one of those euphoric experiences where it just seemed like time both slowed down and sped up all at the same time. We ran for about a mile, mile and a half, before they just suddenly stopped. You know, I stopped and looked back at them. And so as I turned and walked away, I just had this overwhelming feeling of just the connection. And so I felt like I needed to share this. Since then, Sean has been using running to share Navajo culture with the rest of the world. And the way that he decided to do that is the Canyon de Chez Ultra, a 33-mile run through a site so rich with artifacts that usually you're not allowed to go there without a Navajo guide. The only way to see it on your own is to get up with the sun and run this race. Find out more at visitarizona.com and look for the Canyon de Chez Ultra. Chez is spelled C-H-E-L-L-Y at visitarizona.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. Before she started writing books, before the awards and the working with Oprah, in the mid-90s, Susan Casey was the creative director at Outside, when the magazine won three national magazine awards in a row for general excellence. No other magazine has ever done that. Anyway, then she moved on, and her resume looks like she was trying to answer the question, is there anything that Susan Casey can't do? She edited Sports Illustrated for Women, then Oprah Magazine, then started writing books, and is now one of the foremost chroniclers of life in the ocean and how it's changing. Her first was The Devil's Teeth, about sharks on the Farallon Islands. Then she wrote The Wave, about big waves that are getting bigger and the people trying to surf them. And most recently, there's Voices in the Ocean, about what we know and don't know about dolphins. And her books aren't just popular, they're good. Around my house, The Wave is actually the standard by which we judge all other nonfiction books. It's got both a crazy storyline following Laird Hamilton around the world, and it's right on the cutting edge of science at the time, looking at why the average height of ocean waves increased by 25% between the 1960s and 1990s. 
The books have such a following that this year Casey is actually going to be hosting trips that will retrace her reporting. It's called Susan Casey's Adventure Club, and you'll be able to go to the places she went and talk to the people she talked to, swim in the waters she swam in. We wanted to know more about all of this, her career, writing process, reporting. So here she is, talking with Chris. So I know you grew up in Canada, and I think uh, Toronto, right? Right. And were you, was yours a pretty adventurous family? Well, athletic, uh, I would say, more than adventurous, although among my relatives are some of the downhill ski racers in the 80s that were known as the crazy Canucks. So I guess maybe you would okay. say yes. So what did you guys do as a family? That, like, what were some of your earlier experiences outdoors? Well, I was a big skier. Uh, my father took us all, all over the place to ski. Um, I remember you know, being a very small kid and hanging off the chairlift at Stobermont, like not being able to quite get onto the seat. Um, and, uh, and, but on quite early started competitive swimming. So then I was, as I said, more athletic than adventurous, I think, and spent a lot of time staring at the bottom of the pool, you know, four hours a day and such. Uh, but we had a cottage as well. We used to water ski, swim in the lake, uh, just North of Toronto, there's big lake country. Did you have like a like a like a natural competitive streak, or did did you learn that through swimming? I learned it through swimming, and and I was uh, I sort of I, I was in a very elite group of swimmers, but I wasn't myself champion material. I, I was sort of in the room um, with with great swimmers, and I would do the same training. And I always, you know, I wasn't particularly wildly successful, but I was successful enough to say, make the national team just by the skin of my teeth or, you know, get on a traveling international trip or something like that. So over the years I learned to compete, but I was never particularly good at it. Um, when I hit my thirties and started doing more open water swimming and it mattered less in my life and it was less of a, more like something I was doing for fun and less of an imperative to have some result, then I started becoming a much better competitor. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I think it's just, it was, uh, first of all, open water really suited me in a way that I hadn't realized. We were, we were overtrained back, back in the day, swimming was just the, the amount of yardage we did was just surreal. And, uh, I was on a team that particularly, uh, pushed that, that envelope too. So I was probably more ready to swim a five mile ocean race than I was my event, which was, you know, 400 IM and 200 breaststroke. So you went to, is it the University of Arizona on a swimming scholarship? Uh, yes, part of the time. Yeah. I was on a swimming scholarship part of the time and a foreign student scholarship part of the time. Okay. And were, were you interested in journalism when you got to college or was that not even in the picture yet? I was, I've always been interested in the written word. Um, I didn't quite have it in my head how it would play out. And I was more or less interested in everything in college. I dabbled in philosophy and, but my major was French literature. Okay. And, uh, and I also thought it would be really fun to be a photojournalist, but I didn't realize that that meant you were really a news photographer, mm -hmm. you know, journalistic photographer. I thought it meant that you would write a story and then take pictures of the story. So I kind of learned early that what I thought the photojournalism was, was something different. Uh, so I was interested, but I think I was just curious about a lot of things at that time. So how did you get your start in magazines? 
Well, so after university, I, the, I found out that I couldn't stay in the U.S., which was kind of a rude awakening. Mm-hmm. And I had to go back to Toronto, which is really where I didn't want to be. It was very depressing. I'm back in my room in my parents' <laughs> house. And it was like, it was just like the world had ended. But I, um, I started volunteering at a magazine. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a little city magazine called T.O. Magazine. And I was just an assistant in the art department. And when I got there, uh, I realized right away that this was the combination of words and pictures that I was looking for. This was more like this was to me a, a great mix of all the things I liked and thought I was pretty good at. And it just started coming quite easily to work in magazines. And I stayed in Canada, uh, for, for a few years. Um, my fantasy was that I would just get a green card, like someone would just give it to me. And then that happened. <laughs> I, uh, it happened. I, I won the green card lottery, the first, the, the diversity lottery, which now has such a mark against it, but um, I got one, and uh, then then I was I went to um, San Francisco to work at the clothing company Esprit. Okay, I was the art director, so I quit that pretty promptly, and and right around that time is when I went to out, to outside. Okay, so you were there for into thin air. What was it like to be around the office when that disaster took place? I mean, I imagine that. You know, base camp communication was obviously a lot different back then. Now you can just make a cell phone. What were you hearing and what was the atmosphere in the office like? I remember when we found out that something had gone really wrong. We were at a bar. The whole staff was at a barbecue at Hampton Sides house. Um, And, you know, and we didn't know right away. We found out that there had been this storm and these possibly quite a few fatalities. But that's we didn't get that much info. and We knew nothing about what had happened to John. So uh, we went through a period of about, if I'm recalling correctly, like 16 hours, like it wasn't a full day, but it was long enough where we didn't know whether we had Mm. sent a writer to his death. And um, when we found out what had happened, I mean, I still get goosebumps talking about it. I remember, you know, where we decided, first of all, is John even going to be able to write the story? He immediately said he did want to write the story. And so I think in the end, it ran at about 17,000 words. And I just remember everybody just caring so deeply about that story, um, trying to do everything right when we ran it. And, um, and then further, I remember after it came out, John had written the book manuscript pretty quickly as well. And I remember looking at it and just thinking, that's like a soul in a box. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a book manuscript. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, this this notion really lodged in my head. It was like this, this to me, this really sacred thing. And I thought, I really want to write books. You know, one of the things I've always been curious about is, so you were the creative director, and it's not an unheard of path to go from that to an editor, but it's unusual. And how did that transformation come about and were you did you have a hard time getting taken seriously in that realm at first because you were coming from the art background um i i was always sort of if you ask anybody who was around there they'd say i was probably a bit of a pest you know but i would pitch stories i was practicing my basic skills i i knew where i wanted to go but i didn't really know how to get there so i left outside and norman perlstein who was the editor in chief of time inc offered me the opportunity to, with sort of my dream job, which was to come to New York, um, which I'd sort of avoided. But 
in this job, I was the editor at large for all of the magazines, and my role was pretty free ranging. It would I I might create a launch, I might be the creative director of it, I might um, do critiques of magazines. They were basically just using me like a utility player, and um, it was like the biggest playground in the world. And um, somebody said, "Hey, do you want to write a design column?" You know, the iMac had just come out. I knew something about design. So I started writing this column and um, the editor I worked with was Tim Carvel. Tim Carvel has gone on to be the head writer at The Daily Show, the showrunner for John Oliver. I mean, he was just this, like, I mean, to, to be able to work with somebody like as talented as Tim right off the bat, I, mm. I started becoming very um, aware of that I was developing a, write, a, a voice as a writer uh, and he helped me. So I wrote these, this column, I had some clips and um, there were all the magazines were really up for having me write for them. And uh, Time Magazine asked me if there was anything I particularly wanted to write about. And what I really wanted to write about were the Farallon Islands, which I had just discovered. Yeah, you, you discovered that. And I think I read in the book in 1998, you were you saw that BBC documentary. So was was the book idea sort of planted then? Or were you just kind of just kind of tucked that away and were going on with your career? I was obsessed with the Farallons from the moment I saw them. And I was, um, I saw them all the time. I had mono and people at outside might even remember that because I had it for a really long time. And I would come into the office as much as I could, but I would spend a lot of time lying on the floor. I couldn't sleep, but it would be up at night watching the British feed of the BBC and stuff. Um, And so I brought it to an editorial meeting and said, does anybody know about this place? I just really wanted personally, I just wanted to see it. It was the spookiest, most interesting water I had ever seen. And the fact that there, there's a pack of great white sharks in San Francisco city limits. I, I didn't care if I wrote it. I didn't care if I didn't know what, what, what there was to do there, but I wanted to go there and I wanted to know more about it. And then when I got there, that's when I started realizing, oh, this is something much more than a magazine article. And were the researchers out there when you chartered the boat? Yeah, I had Time Magazine got me a permit to go onto the island, which is extremely difficult. And at that time, even National Geographic hadn't had one. Um, so that was useful. And I, you, you get, you can't land a boat there. You have to be pulled out of the water by a crane and put onto the, these rocks, and uh, which, which are called the Devil's Teeth. Um, that's why the book is called the Devil's Teeth. And uh, I met the, the researchers. Did not see a shark on my first visit and they were they were sort of disappointed because it was shark season and it was really one of the only days the sharks weren't showing off uh, and there were a lot there's a lot of sharks out there um so they invited me back the next year as an intern and this was again the sort of the beauty of being an editor at large this is hey i'm sure i'll go out there for two weeks and hang out with you so i went back the following year uh and and then and started doing research and realizing that very little uh, information existed about this place. Hmm. I, I think there's sort of a serendipity in that book idea too, that I mean, you'd already found this fascinating place and subject, obviously great white sharks, but just the history of the islands themselves were, you know, enough for a sort of a secondary book. Is that something you look for? Is there sort of dual storylines? Well, what I look for in a book is enough information to merit a book as opposed to a magazine article. And that, I think it was the history, the crazy history, human history at the Farallons that really made me think it was a book. Um, I mean, I guess you probably could write a book just on spending time out there, but 
yeah, I think it's, you need a certain amount of, um, density of story, mm-hmm. um, to, to justify asking someone to sit down for a hundred thousand words as opposed to 6,000 words. Yeah. And in, you know, along with the sort of secondary storyline or, you know, it's all sort of braided together, but you need the characters and the characters were incredible. That was another thing that I wouldn't have known when I started. What had been your exposure to sharks to that point? Well, just, just um, fear and fascination like everybody else. Uh, I, I hadn't seen sharks in the wild um, or maybe I had, but um you know, I, I'm not even sure I had seen sharks in the wild. Um, certainly never seen a great white shark. And, um, you know, like everybody else, I, especially people who swim aware and sort of, I was, I was even scared of small fish. I mean, so there's just this fear and fascination and that in in a way is a definition of the sublime, which is where there's beauty, but there's also terror. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the sublime. And even though I didn't really know how to define it at that moment, that combination uh, is always compelling to me. And what was the, your exposure to sharks? Like what, what did that do to your terror? Was it like exposure therapy where it it sort of diminished or do you have even more of an understanding now of sharks and uh, more terror as a result? No, no, uh, there was, there was never terror. There's, there's this healthy respect. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, these are, these animals are so perfectly adapted and, and great white sharks are different than other sharks in a lot of different ways, but they do not come across, uh, like say a tiger shark. Um, they're, they're way more mammalian seeming. They seem more like, they, they seem less like fish and more like say cetaceans. They're huge. Um, they're warm blooded. There's, there's only a few warm blooded shark species and they're just, they're actually cautious. They don't, white sharks, there's such a a perfect predator that they don't just launch themselves at stuff for no reason. They check it out. Um, they, They also show different sides of their personality. We, when they made Jaws, sort of damned this animal to being seen as this uh, bloodthirsty killer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, they have teeth and they, they're good at hunting, but there are all these other facets of their being that you wouldn't see unless you really spent time with them. And there's almost no place in the world where you could spend a lot of time with a group of great white sharks, but at the Farallons, you can. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sharks are obviously at once terrifying. I mean, I think the stat in your book that has always stuck with me is the idea that the, of their girth, that they're as wide as, you know, Yao Ming is tall, which just blows my mind. And yet, you know, beginning with Jaws is that that sort of seminal moment. But every time there's a summer with a couple of attacks, and certainly our outside is guilty of this too, there's there's this tendency to sensationalize it. And you also have the species that's in desperate need of protection. So, you know, how deliberate and how conscious were, were you of that, you know, walking that balance of, describing them so that people have that healthy respect, but not trying to play into the kind of the tropes of the way that media has covered great whites in the past. Well, I I really wanted to the book to be the anti jaws. So instead of showing them uh, through a sort of a fear based lens, I would show them through a curiosity based lens and they have such an incredible natural history. I mean, they're older than trees on the planet Mm -hmm. um, that, it really wasn't very hard. It, also, they 
the scientists, in order to keep track of how many sharks there were, had sort of gotten to know them as individuals and named them. Um, you know, there's, there's a real bias against anthropomorphizing animals for scientists, but this was merely a way, to, good way to keep track of them. And also, the the science that was being done out there was pretty unorthodox. Um, and in that way, it was actually sort of fun to to see them breaking all these rules um, because they were actually coming up with all these new observations about great white sharks that nobody had had any idea about. I mean, they gender segregate geographically. So the females have the biggest, the best hunting ground. The females are completely dominant. There's no feeding frenzy. They're very orderly. Um, they, they decapitate their prey and then they take off, swim around for about five minutes and come back to it. The, and, and if you think about it, that's kind of a smart strategy because these big seals and sea lions that they're eating could scratch their eyes and a blind shark would be a dead shark. So with no head, you, you, you know, you're pretty safe to come on in and feed. Um, because the sharks feed, the, the seals floated, uh, the sharks would feed on the surface and they didn't care if the boat was right next to them while they were feeding. They really didn't care. They were, and they would eat like, if I could just compare them to anything, it would be like watching a dog. Hmm. They sort of eat sort of calmly and methodically. Um, so, you know, it wasn't very hard to flesh out the qualities and characters of great white sharks because they were there to be observed. Is there anything about that first book process that you look back and, and think, oh, I just can't believe I did it that way or mistakes that you learned from? Well, I remember at the beginning, you know, I was conscious of the fact that I had never written anything that long before. I did learn a process that I've refined about how to take large reams of information and kind of have access to them in my head. You know, there is a bit of a process just in structure mm -hmm. that I learned and I think I've gotten better with over time. But um, yeah, I kind of fumbled my way through it. I was scared. It's like, be careful what you wish for. All of a sudden, I, yeah, here's a book. And I was a little bit daunted by the process. But my father used to just tell me, look, it's one step in front of the other. And that's actually the perfect um, description of what it is to write a book. Somebody else said bricklaying. That's true, too. Yeah. The so Let's talk about The Wave a little bit. Your second book, it had sort of similar in that it was a dual storyline you know, there's the science of rogue waves themselves, and then the kind of cultural story of the surfers hunting them down. Which aspect first drew you to this? Well, so the, the Devil's Teeth had a kind of a through narrative of being at this one place and with these characters that went all the way through the book. And that was kind of a good training ground for the wave structure, which was more complicated because there were these different kinds of waves that, you know, aside from the rogue waves, there was the storm, the, the storm waves, the, the ships disappearing. Um, and then these, this group of surfers and then the waves themselves were also characters. So the structure of the wave uh, was really, there was a through narrative for half the book and then digressions for the other half of the book. And that was more complicated to fit those puzzle pieces together. But it was that combination that it, drew me in the first place. It was uh, this new New York Times newspaper story about disappearing freighters and tankers. I remember saying at the time, if look, if a single 747 full of people disappeared, everybody would know about it. Why is this happening all the time and nobody talks about it? And why is it happening all the time? So there was this big mystery. And it also got tied into a dawning awareness of climate change and how the oceans were becoming more volatile. You know, the, the main premise of the wave, I think, to distill it to one sentence is we are going to be living in a stormier, more aquatic world. 
And I started uh, meeting scientists who I want to talk about these sort of monster rogue waves that I thought were so fascinating. And they, they were like, oh, no, 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 no. The real, the real monster in the room here is climate change and these storms growing up very quickly and becoming more intense. And in an intense, fast building storm, you get these bizarre nonlinear ocean conditions that sp- spawn these waves. You mean the conspiracy of global warming that's promoted by the Chinese? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. When I started getting that kind of early, because the wave came out in t- 2010, and I would go out on the road, and um, that book really got a lot of media attention. And people would say, well, do you believe in climate change? And I remember thinking in the beginning, this is a very strange question. Because if you're sitting there looking at these waves, and it, it's not a matter of what you believe this is happening. And so what my thoughts about it are really irrelevant. Uh, And I still think that is a very strange question and shows a a very weak underpinning to the human condition. Did you find that people were actually showing up to debate you on it? No, I mean, I did have a couple um, scientists tell me that they thought that my way of handling climate change was good because it was, um, I did it sort of accidentally was to communicate through the characters and their experiences in these waves to talk to the scientists, you know, as individual characters, whereas there's a lot of shrieking about this is very bad. These cities are going to be underwater. That isn't something that is people will turn away from that really easily. Like if I had said the wave was a book about climate change, I probably wouldn't have sold as many copies of the book. Yeah. That's something that we struggle with. And I'm sure you struggled with in the nineties at outside is just, there are so many dire and worthy environmental stories to tell, but if there isn't a great story behind it, you just can't do it. And, and your readers aren't going to want to read it. And what's the point if they're not going to consume 6,000 words? Uh, it's, it's a wasted effort. You, you know, the, the interesting segue to my latest book, which is called Voices in the Ocean, it's about dolphins. I found found myself being very opinionated in almost uh, at the level of an activist in terms of what we were doing to these creatures that are so unbelievably adapted to the planet, so much more than we are, and whom we know almost nothing about, uh, that it was hard for me to walk the line of being a sort of an unbiased narrator. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I didn't want to fall into the trap that activists sometimes fall into, which is just bad, 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 this is bad. I want to sort of kind of seduce the reader into coming to an emotional conclusion on their own Mm -hmm. so they can decide i don't think you put down voices of the ocean and think oh it's just fantastic that we we pen them up in swimming pools um or that we you know use their teeth as a currency to buy buy women in the case of the solomon islands it's it's wrong but the reader comes to that conclusion on his own and so when you would write about things like that or like going to japan to protest the slaughter um would you, as you're through the writing process, would you kind of feel this rage boiling up and kind of try to tamp that down? Like, how would you deal with that, um, that effort? Yeah, I, I, the Taiji is a very dark place. And the Solomon Islands, where I also went, which I would almost say was worse than Taiji, the same thing. But again, it, you're, I'm there to tell a story, not to wag my finger and bark at people that they should think a certain way. So yeah, I, I had a lot of issues with my own mood while I was writing Voices in the Ocean. It was a much different book to write. Mm-hmm. It was more personal, more emotional. Um, it, it came uh, after my father died and I was grappling with 
feelings of grief as well. So there was, there was a lot of stuff I had to work through and people do think the book has got its tough moments in it. Whereas for me, if I was to write it now today, um, I, I probably would try to balance it out a little bit more with some of the magic and wonder. There's plenty of that in there, but I do think the book has, has some pretty dark moments. Mm. Yeah. It's one of the things I'm always curious about and talk to writers about. I think that it's overlooked a lot. You know, it's pretty obvious with something like, you know, being a war correspondent that you, you witness all that trauma, even if you're not intimately involved with it, you're, it's natural that you would, you would suspect that some of those people are going to suffer from some kind of PTSD as a result how did you find like witnessing something like you saw on the Solomon Islands that um, just hit you so viscerally as a reporter um, dealing with that emotion, you know, being out in the field? War is an interesting metaphor to bring up because I think that what I'm looking at now and trying to figure out how to deal with is the longest war of all. And that's our war on nature. Uh, and there is not going to be a future in which we fight this battle and win. This is because, you know, there is, there are no winners in that war and especially not us. So, uh, it, it's a constant struggle to figure out how to do that in a way that isn't just this primal scream, you know, it's, it is more of a, and I'm sure you deal with this with all kinds of stories. Yesterday, Twitter was screaming about something very worth screaming about. And that's that now it's okay to bring elephant trophies into the U S and, I mean, what sort of monsters are we? That So this is, I do grapple with this all the time. I think this is the big um, subject I'm, I'm interested in at the moment. This is game time. And if we don't stop it with this, we, we have no future. And are you hopeful? Sometimes I have little glimmers of hope. Uh, and other times I'm not at all. But I don't really want to write from that place of complete hopelessness. Um, on the other hand, you know, I don't have kids. I think anybody who has kids right now should be feeling pretty panicked. You know, the three books obviously all deal with oceans and, and have some kind of a conservation bent to them at their heart. And I know that you've, I saw that you have started um, leading some ocean adventures with this Earth Missions. What, how did that come about? Um, well, I, I, people have always wanted to see the places I've written about. Um, and I get approached a lot from people saying, for example, after The Devil's Teeth, everybody wanted to see a great white shark. And I knew that there's a place in Mexico called Guadalupe Island. It's kind of a hellish boat ride. You know, you're, this is like a day and a half boat ride, and it's 150 miles out in the middle of the Pacific. But when you get there, you can cage dive in really clear water. And um, you, you pretty much are guaranteed of seeing a shark because unlike the Farallons, that place is, is not, there's no, they chum. Um, they don't over chum. It's protected to a certain extent, but you can chum. And the sharks have gotten to the point where when they hear the boat anchors going down, they come uh, to the boats. So you're going to see a white shark if you go out to the Guadalupe Island. Whereas at the Farallons, they still do some cage diving, but it, you're almost guaranteed not to see a shark because the visibility is so, it's dark, it's filled with krill, it's 50 degrees. It, pretty much any good picture you've seen of a great white shark has been taken either at Guadalupe or if it's below the water, it's at Guadalupe. If it's jumping out of the water at South Africa, um, it's a lot harder at the Farallons uh, to, to get those sort of glory shots. Um, 
but uh, so I, I chartered a boat and I invited 20 of my friends to come out to Guadalupe and we had this great time. And um, I had lately been thinking about how I could give back more to the ocean and wanting to do some fundraising for some of the groups that I feel are doing very important work environmentally, like the National Re- Resources Defense Council and Mission Blue and uh, Surfrider. So I'm creating an experience. This is a trial run that we're going to do this year where we just bring the pages of the books to life. So the first one will be in Hawaii and we're going to be doing all kinds of ocean adventures. We're going to have a dolphin day, a whale day, a big wave day, a shark day. We're going to get in the water with all of them. And um, the characters are going to stop by and we'll have conversations. And it's a small group that'll go and the, the proceeds from that trip will be um, donated back to uh, these ocean conservation groups. And so how many of these trips are you going to do? Well, we'll have to see how this one goes. Yeah. Um, I really would like to do this because I think it's an interesting way to make the experience of reading the book come to life. And I think it could be a good way to um, benefit these groups who who I think are really under siege right now from a lot of different directions. I mean, there I don't know, there's not a day that comes up right now where there's not some sort of lawsuit or some sort of uh, outrage that's perpetrated by the Trump administration on the environment. So they need our help. And so I would like to do more and I would like to do some shorter trips that people could do um, across different price points. You know, maybe we could do a boat trip out to the Farallons, have a, have a, a reading, have a talk, you know, have a nice sunset cocktail and then come back. And so are, are you working on another book now? Um, I am. It's um, a really ambitious book that is so far proving to be um, a lot to chew on. (laughs) I can't really go further than that at the moment (laughs) because I'm really superstitious. But um, yeah, it has to do with what I was mentioning about our relationship to the natural world. How messed up it is. Yeah, I know not to pry anymore at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I know the drill. Well, Susan, it was so great to talk to you. Thanks, Chris. Likewise. That's Susan Casey talking with Chris Kyes. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and myself. It was brought to you by Arizona, home of the Canyon de Chez Ultra this October. Registration opens in a couple of weeks. Go to visitarizona.com for more. Thanks to everybody who has been reaching out about our survival series. All the tweets and emails have been awesome. The podcast was actually mentioned in a fair number of best of 2017 lists, so to all our new listeners, welcome. We'll be back in two weeks with a piece from a writer who spent this winter learning cold-weather combat techniques from the Finnish Special Forces. They used them to successfully hold off Russia in World War II, and recently they've been updating their skills for war in the 21st century. You won't want to miss it.